the minute I feel defensive, that's when I start listening. Mm. That's when I know I need to pay attention because I need to take a step back and say, why, why do I have this defensive reaction? And I've tried to be the same way. Because even within the trans community, there is a level of privilege. Being a white trans woman is a lot easier than being a trans woman of color in society. It doesn't mean we have it easy by any means, but it certainly means there are people who are struggling a lot more than we are as a whole, and we need to be aware of that. And it would be a lot easier to sort of just blow that off and say, well, we have it hard too, but that's not the point of the conversation when that comes up. If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multiamory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're speaking with Marissa Alexa McCool. Marissa is a graduate student at Augsburg University, a podcaster, author, performer, and activist. She's published nine books, which is mind-blowing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> been we just want to do one. <laughs> been podcasting since 2016, had an epic coming out story, and does a blend of theatrical and academic speaking styles for her speeches that she's given across the country. And she's also in her first season playing women's tackle football for Minnesota Pride, which is awesome. Uh, we got to meet Marissa last year when we shared the stage with her at Minnesota Polycon just this last summer. And we're really excited to have her on the show. So, Marissa, thank you so much for joining us. Yay. Absolutely. Uh, pretty much any time Callie Wright's been on a show, I'm like, oh, I'm here too. <laughs> so. She and I uh, definitely haven't experienced transphobia when we've been confused for the same person. Oh, twelve boy. times. So, oh, wow. Times, <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes, I well, I listened to your interview on Callie Wright's show on Queer Explaining. We all did. Yeah, yeah. we all it was did. So great. Um, and it sounds like that's a relationship that that goes way back between the two of you. Yeah, we go back to twenty early twenty sixteen. Uh, they were one of the first people in the community that I came out to, and that was before I had even been out to pretty much anyone but the closest people around me. So they're really special to me. I've uh, been on their podcast probably 10 times. They've been oh, on wow. mine just as many times. Uh, I photographed their wedding. Like, we're, oh, we're tight. That's nice. great. Excellent. That's lovely. So on Square, on, on your episode of Queer Explaining, um, you... In this particular interview episode, you shared much of your life story, you know, how you came to be the person that you are today. And I definitely highly recommend to our listeners, you know, go listen to that episode, listen to Marissa's story. It's really, really fascinating and really interesting. Um, what I wanted to ask you more about was I wanted to know more about your origin story as far as when it came to your approach to relationships and how your identity came to crystallize around non-monogamy, polyamory, non-traditional relationships. Well, for a very long time, I always felt like I was too much for one person to deal with. And that was a lot of it was being untreated for autism and not knowing what all these gender feelings I was having were. Because I was raised in the reddest of red areas in Pennsylvania. And for the longest time, I thought I was a drag queen. And that was because that was the only word I had for what I thought I was feeling. And that was like when I was 18. So we're talking early 2000s. Red America, Bush height of conservatism, like it was a, not a good time to be discovering queer feelings and not a good place for it. So a lot of my relationships, uh, you know, throughout my 20s, I kind of had to start dating someone and just kind of float the idea that there was a lot more mm. to me than everything showed. Mm. And sometimes it went well, other times it didn't. And it, 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 like I said, it just all came from this this idea that I felt like I was too much for one person. I felt like I would, people have described me as intimidating, and I can't figure that out. But it's sort of just I spent my the, the the times I wasn't in relationships in my twenties. I was kind of a unicorn, kind of a third a lot, and I dated a lot instead of being in a lot of monogamous relationships, and I just felt better. 
So, mm. you know, as I started coming out and really figuring out that I was trans and autistic, which was relatively uh, similar time, um, it just seemed to go right along with that. Because if you're if you're trans and monogamous, uh, the dating pool really shrivels up <laughs> really quick. So uh, I think that's what really opened me up to making it official, mm. I would say. Mm-hmm. So right. that's kind of how I got there. It's it's so interesting that you mention kind of starting from a place of feeling like you were too much for one person, because I feel like what a lot of people fear when they think about opening up or becoming non-monogamous is like, oh, does that mean I'm not enough for someone? Mm. And so that's interesting yeah. to kind of the way you said that, at least it's like the total opposite side. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you read my 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 intro and I can't tell you how many people, even after coming out and everything that I dated that would say, I just can't keep up with you. And <laughs> that's, that, that just kind of reinforced that feeling that like, Oh my God, I'm so overwhelming. I'm trying to do so many things that I'm scaring people away. So yeah, it is kind of the inverse of that uh, cliche, so to speak. Right. Wow. Yeah. So we wanted to uh, talk a little bit about something that you sort of just brought up, which was that you, were born into this kind of conservative part of Pennsylvania and you grew up in a pretty conservative environment. And now you travel around the country. You do um, speaking like at different polyamorous cons or different places and stuff as well. And so do you see other conservative parts of the country changing at all or modifying their views? I know we've kind of stepped back into this really sort of ultra conservative Trump culture. Again, it's a very volatile time in our country's history. But do you see people sort of modifying their views on gender relationships or sexuality? Or is it kind of just business as usual? Have we actually not changed that much since 2000, 2001, back in oh, the Bush era? It's it's changed a lot. And uh, just a small correction, I wasn't born in Pennsylvania, but I grew up there. Oh. Um, no worries. I was six years old when I first moved there. So it's not like it was a big thing, but, um, it has changed a lot even there. Um, cause I, I falsely or falsely isn't the word I tried to come out in 2014 and it had disastrous results. And even just in those two years between my first attempt and my actual time that I went through with it, I noticed a tremendous difference in people's attitudes and kind of their friendliness uh, and their openness to the hmm. idea. Uh, I definitely cool. had to cut some people out of my life, but, um, uh, and you know, I came out in 2016, I was helping a friend of mine come out in 2019, even helped to uh, pick her a name. And she said well, she didn't have one person who was mean to her, who criticized her, who challenged her in public. And she's in Texas. So oh, wow. if that's wow. happening wow. in Texas, things, things are changing. And the problem is, Things are changing a lot, but that scares the shit out of the people that uh, just like it in, you know, private and in their uh, porn searches and Mm. are scared to death that that makes them gay, which is, of course, the worst thing in the world. So they tend to yell the loudest about it. It's kind of like how the most homophobic pastors and senators always seem to get caught with their bathroom, their their foot under the bathroom door. Mm. You know, same thing with trans people, because if. If so many people are so scared of trans people, why is trans porn such a lucrative business? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's just right. inconsistent and pretty much the uh, uh, we see you protest too much thing applies as much there as people who are scared shitless of gay people. Right, definitely. What is almost kind of like this phenomenon of the extinction burst of, you know, as things get more accepted, as as um people come out as there's more awareness of it that there is going to be that it's not even just backlash but it really is that kind of like like the um the death throes you know the people who scream the loudest the people who react the strongest because the fact that that i would hope anyway that the perception is that this is a tide that's changing and can't really be undone I would well, hope. they're they're doing their best they can to try to legislate us out of existence, and unfortunately, some people see complicity with that as uh, a, a good compromise. And it's like, uh, you know, if if you legislate us away from being able to use a public restroom, it keeps us from b- being able to exist in public, and that's what they're trying to do. Mm. So there's there's far too much 
oh, you're too mean, you're too radical, you're too outspoken. And, you know, a, a lot of people just don't understand that what's just a theoretical concept to them is our very existence. So, you know, we're, we're doing the best we can. It, it just seems like we get legislated against somewhere every friggin' month and it's exhausting. That, yeah, you had talked. Word. Go ahead. Or you had talked before uh, we started the podcast just about how uh, many transgendered people can't even get a passport, which is something I had no idea about. Can you speak on that a little bit? Because I think some people aren't even aware of something like that. That's so horrible. Yeah, there's a few articles that have come out about it, but most people really either don't know or haven't been paying attention to it. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's not new. It's started within the administration, but they, they haven't outright banned us from getting passports. But I can't tell you how many people I know who have had their their either their name change or they're getting their initial passport held up uh, because of transphobia. Like, that's really all there is to it. Um, the, the article that I read uh, back back when it came out was of someone who transitioned when they were 13 and they were saying, you know, we, we need to see yeah. these documents and everything. And it's like, I was a child. <laughs> you know, I don't yeah, have those. I exactly. have never existed in public as anybody except who I am. So there's no reason for you to have that or to need it. And uh, they're just putting up, you know, when they're not putting out outright bigoted laws or rifras or anything like that, they're, they're just making it that much harder to exist as a person. And that's a lot of the microaggressions of government that people don't see. Mm. And they often yeah. accuse us of making stuff up because why would they know that? Mm. Right. Well, so you said something that really struck a chord. You know, you said something to the effect of like, you know, what seems to be just like a hypothetical or theoretical discussion for you is actually a matter of survival for me. And I know that's something that we came up against um, actually quite recently in our own community um, of just this. And it doesn't just happen just with transgender identities, but, you know, multiple marginalized identities and communities where it's kind of like people discuss it almost like it's a matter of philosophy that can just be kind of bandied around, not realizing that like, oh, this actually has impact for people. But I do feel like there is something about the discussions around gender. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's just because we all have some kind of relationship to gender, you know, all of us, it's, you know, a fairly universal experience that then makes it so that it's easier for people to kind of just hop on this train of like, let's just talk about these things philosophically and theoretically. And like, why should you need to have a special bathroom and stuff like that without realizing that it's like there's repercussions on the ground for people actually living this way. Well, if you look at the fact that most of our representation before about three or four years ago was a punchline or a serial killer, it makes a lot of sense because mm -hmm. people do draw their cues from media and movies and shows and representations. And apparently some comedians haven't caught up with the times because they're still using trans people as a punching bag in their fucking specials. So uh, it's, it's exhausting there too, because you know, then they'll come out and say, Oh, it's just jokes. It's just whatever. It's like, yeah, okay, but why are the transphobes and homophobes quoting you, you know, verbatim mm. to either attack or bully us? You know, you might not think you're being transphobic, but they're using your words to be transphobic. So maybe you should examine that relationship a little bit. Um, you know, and even even the representation that we've had that isn't outright, <laughs> it's a man in a dress, because of course only trans women in the trans community exist. We all know that. But even mm -hmm. then, it's more often a cis person playing a trans person, and it's a cis person writing about their theoretical idea of what it would be like to be trans instead of actually right. having trans people. So, you know, it, it's particularly insulting to the, those of us who, are, who have these stories and are trying to tell them for a Mark Ruffalo or a yeah. Jared Leto or somebody like that to come along and go, yeah, I think I know better than you. I'm going to go get an award for telling what I think your story is like. Yeah, so, that's some bullshit. Yeah. Right. yeah. And we're right. just starting well, to get past that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I do want to talk about that more. I mean, on this show, we do love 
examining media representation and how, you know, it's 100% true that we do take our cues from media. And so it is sometimes very vital to be watching for all of the nuances of like, how is this representation changing? Um, usually we, we talk about on the show in regards to how non-monogamy representation is changing and shifting. And so I'd definitely love to hear from you. What do you notice um, both kind of what's changing on the horizon as far as transgender media representation, as well as what you see as for you know, non-monogamy and polyamory representation? I feel like with the influx of unicorn hunters on dating sites, that's kind of where people automatically go with it. And, you know, I, I faced a little controversy about what I, what I made jokes about, which became the basis of my new book. But uh, at times I feel like that's where it begins and ends in a lot of people's minds. And I also think that's where it's um, being represented the most is just the the straight couple that is either looking for a spark or, you know, it's a straight guy by woman. And, uh, you know, she just has all these fantasies that she wants to fulfill. Ugh, of course. And, and you can tell from how a certain group of people, not all of them approach that on a dating site where they're just talking about what they want, what what's going on for them and how the, the queer woman is basically just a fantasy object. And, mm -hmm. I might not speak for all queer women, but most of us don't want to be objectified and used as someone's living porn search and then thrown away when somebody gets jealous. So absolutely, that's I mean, it, at least it's making progress. And, you know, it's getting represented as not everybody is monogamous or wants to be, but it's got a long way to go. Um, as far mm -hmm. as trans representation, it's getting better. I mean, at least some if not most people know who Janet Mock is and know who Laverne Cox is. And, uh, you know, there's, there's at least some examples we can point to. And Laverne comes into the restaurant that I work at often. She's lovely. Yeah. She's usually she's with amazing. a huge entourage. So yeah, yeah but she's awesome. <laughs> and Janet Mock will always hold a place in my heart as, uh, she, she came to speak at my, um, undergrad and I missed her, but I had just published my first book, and I asked if I could send it to her and she responded and actually gave me an address to send it to. So wow. that, that will always be a special thing for me. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's getting there. It's better than it was. I can say that, you know, we're not dealing with as many, the Danish girls or anything like that. I mean, we still have ScarJo uh, comparing us to playing a tree. Right. So not everybody's <laughs> there yet. Everyone and every, yeah, single person out there. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, there's a reason that if you ask a trans girl what her favorite movie is, eight out of 10 of them are going to say boy meets girl because it's a trans woman played by a trans woman. Like it's, it's really, mm. you know, we have so few examples to go to that someone just making a paint by numbers love story where the person just happens to be trans is one of the few places we can go where we're not feeling like we're hearing someone else's interpretation or theoretical complex of, about our identities. And I think, you know, to speak back about why everybody's so curious about it or so into it is because a lot more people have these issues than are willing to admit, but we live in a, you know, a parochial society that's like, you're a man, you have to do this X, Y, Z, or you're not X, you know? And it's, uh, as an autistic person who never gave a shit about that, let alone now, um, anytime someone comes to me with that, I just try to have a conversation of why do you think this way? What, what is it about me that threatens you so much? In having those conversations with people, has there been anything particularly illuminating? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's, you know, transphobia is based on homophobia which is based in sexism. Mm. It always comes back to sexism uh, because, you know, gay fear came out of the fear of men being feminine and hating femininity because everybody has to be a masculine, masculine man. And then lesbians were more fetishized than hated, which is problematic in and of itself. But then trans people come along and amazingly, some trans women are really hot and <laughs> guys get attracted to them and then panic because that of course must make them gay. And then they feel like they have to kill us because of that. Mm -hmm. So this, this deeply rooted fear of femininity and sexism is at the root of it. Um, you know, we just have to kind of 
walk people back because they're so paranoid about being seen as gay, you know, especially men. And getting past that is one of the biggest keys that it's like, if you're attracted to someone who is not a cisgender straight woman, it's okay. And even if it did make you gay, who cares? Why are you so afraid of that? And getting it's, it's getting past people's defenses that that has really led me to make a lot of progress with some people, because as verbose and forward as I am on stage, and that is partially to get people's attention. When I talk to them one on one, like I did MM Polycom, like some people were standing there talking to me for a half hour. Like I'm I'm much more like this. I'm much more approachable and understanding and patient. But the key is I don't owe that hmm. to someone. Right. And right. that's that's where my boundaries have kind of been pushed um, more times than one, where someone demands to know what my sex life involves on a specific level or when someone wants to see my vagina and I don't know who they are. It's like, right. I don't owe you yeah. everything, okay? Why... Do you think that there is a subset of like feminist culture that is also super transphobic? Um, you're yeah. talking about turfs, I assume. Oh, yeah. yeah, we've talked about this a oh. little bit on the show before, but I I really be curious to know your answer to that. I think once again, at the deep root of it is sexism in the sense which is ironic, that but yeah, they're, they're, right. You know, there's this idea that men are always trying to get into women's spaces and as tormented as women can be in this society, I, on, on a little bit, I understand where they're coming from. Like they think that people are trying to infiltrate that because dudes are always mm. trying to infiltrate that shit, but we're yeah, exactly. not them. And, and there's also kind of this like tendency among certain People who are marginalized in one way, but privileged in all the others, their tendency is to throw someone loader, lower on the ladder under the bus because they think, oh, well, if, if all the focus is on them, they're not going to come after us and may even see us as allies. It's sort of that whole civility compromise thing. And, I, you know, when I've encountered a turfy lesbian who thinks that it's, that that pairing up with the alt right is going to go well for them? It's like what whatever they do to us, they're going to do to you next. Don't don't think that it's going to stop with us. And that that's kind of my general message to everyone who listens to me speak: is if nothing else, understand that anything they're doing to trans people now, uh, you're probably next in some way. Yeah, I mean it. It reminds me the whole turf thing reminds me of the MRA movement, like the men's mm -hmm. rights activist mm -hmm. movement, where it's kind of the same thing of, okay, we're in a relative position of privilege compared to this other group. But once they start getting attention and start bringing attention to the fact that we're more privileged than them, it's like, oh no, okay, I see being, uh, what's the word, like being disadvantaged or suffering somehow makes you a better person. So no, actually, we're the ones who suffer more than you. So you can't be part of this. It reminds me of that, which I think comes from also this idea that, um, you know, it's like the old, oh, well, you know, my my job is so hard. I have to do this and this and this. It's like, oh, well, that's nothing. I have to do that too. But then also I come home and my wife is awful and the other person's like, oh, yeah, but but my kids are so terrible. It's almost like this competition of who suffers more because somehow that makes your achievements better. And I think that well, they, they, like we glorify so. that and that's what encourages both the TERFs and the MRAs to do that. Yeah. There, a buzzword I, I always hear when this comes up is oppression Olympics, mm. That, mm. that people think we're saying what we are just to be more oppressed than somebody else. And it's like, no, most of us just kind of want to be left the fuck alone for a little while. Um, you know, this competitive suffering uh, you know, there, there are certain groups who feel like they have to do that because otherwise they don't get the attention they want. But at the same time, uh, it's usually used to dehumanize and blow people off. Because if you think they're just saying that to try to be, uh, you know, a bigger martyr than the other, it's a lot easier to just kind of categorically dismiss them. And when you're in a, a you know, a higher position of privilege and 
you un- you think that privilege means that it's a character judgment or that it means you haven't ever done anything hard it's it's it'd be really easy to sort of think that oh these people are saying i've never had to work for anything or these people are saying i'm a bad person because they're still telling me to check my privilege and it's a lot easier to convince yourself of that than it is that, hey, maybe I've been complicit in hurting people and I mm. should examine that. Mm. So it, it's not surprising that there are a lot of people who sort of react so defensively to that. But the best advice I ever got was someone um, whose name is escaping me at the moment, unfortunately, who said, the minute I feel defensive, that's when I start listening. Mm. That's when I know I need to pay attention because I need to take a step back and say, why, why do I have this defensive reaction? And I've tried to be the same way. Because even within the trans community, there is a level of privilege. Being a white trans woman is a lot easier than being a trans woman of color in society. It doesn't mean we have it easy by any means. But it certainly means there are people who are struggling a lot more than we are as a whole. And we need to be aware of that. And it would be a lot easier to sort of just blow that off and say, well, we have it hard too, but that's not the point of the conversation when that comes up. So, um, you know, I think it's a good rule pretty much across the board. (laughs) If you, if you feel defensive, take a step back and try to figure out why you feel defensive. If you keep asking yourself questions, you're probably eventually going to arrive at the answer of the roots of it and not the immediate conversation that's setting you off. And that's not to say you should never be defensive, but you mm. should know why beyond the surface reaction. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That yeah. Was I'm just like going to sit with that for a second because that's definitely something I need to <laughs> remind myself from time to time. Yeah. 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 Everyone go like rewind it two minutes and yeah, listen to that seriously. again. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm yeah. getting mean now. <laughs> All right. Now you've re-listened to it. Great. We're back. Uh, so I'm going to change topics now. So the next thing that we want to talk to you about is um, about specifically mental health and non-monogamy uh, and also transgender. So we did an episode not too long ago with Ruby Bowie Johnson about mental health and relationships in general and also non-monogamy. But you have been part of a study and you've also been interviewed in some articles specifically talking about the intersection between autism, neurodivergence, and transgender, uh, you know, gender identity. Um, What, can you tell us a little bit more about what those things are? And then I have more questions after that. (laughs) Sure. So uh, kind of being at the intersection of the two, um, I'm featured in an article that hasn't been published yet. That is about why trans people see or why autistic people seem to embrace being trans quicker and why those things sort of line up. And, you know, for starters, uh, under the symptoms of autism is gender dysphoria. So there's a huge Hmm. meeting point there. And, you know, obviously there's a spectrum of autism as there is a spectrum of gender. So I don't speak for everybody. I speak in generalities in this regard. But generally, autistic people tend to reject being, you know, things that we're told just because or because society says we should. Excuse me. Personally, I don't celebrate any holidays because I don't like being told how to feel on a certain day. And I don't want to do something just because a day says I should. And gender is kind of the same way. Even when I was younger, it was, you know, you have to do this. And I'm Why? Well, because you're ex. <laughs> no, <laughs> like it, it was, it's just a patent rejection of that. And that it's, I don't want to call it an advantage because, uh, you know, they're, they're both things we have to learn. And I always refer to it as learning how to be a person again. And I had to do it twice with being trans and being autistic. Uh, but the processes in my experience were very similar. You have to kind of start over from square one and realize you're going to react to things differently. Uh, you understand something about yourself more. How you walked in the world before is not how you're going to be able to walk in the world now. And sometimes that sucks. <laughs> it really does. But you find a deeper understanding of yourself. You know, when you, when you look back and you were a teenager, it was like, 
oh, all my friends were girls and they liked putting makeup on me. And that would horrify most of the people I knew back then. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just kind of puts everything in a context and retrospectively a lot more makes sense. And it's near parallel for me uh, that I was, you know, a teenager in a super conservative area who, of course, wasn't autistic because most people's, uh, you know, reasoning of autism back then was just the, the cliche of, you know, uh, I'm not even going to get into it because it's so offensive, mm-hmm. but they weren't looking for it. And then I was also dealing with what I now know was gender dysphoria because I never liked being seen as a guy. I never did. And even at a very young age, I was just, I was cleaner. I didn't like getting dirty. I didn't like the stereotypical little boy things. And looking back on it now, it makes a lot of sense. But, you know, until then, and even growing up, I was just the weird kid. So uh, it, it kind of gives reasoning and a level of understanding of how you got there and what you went through. And instead of just saying, well, those were some really screwed up times. It's like, oh, I get it. You know, it's it's it's, it's comforting in a way once you kind of get past the, oh, God, I'm I'm walking and I feel unsafe. I'm in, you know, X area. Uh, why do I feel so uncomfortable? Why is everybody staring at me? Or why do I think everybody's staring at me? But once you get past that stuff, you find out a lot of interesting things about yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that you talk about it, and I remember that this struck me also, you know, when you were interviewed by Callie Wright, that for you, you know, coming, like, finally, the pieces all coming together and clicking about the neurodivergence and being autistic that, like you said, it w- it seems like it was more of a source of comfort for you of like, okay, now all these things make sense. And while I have to tackle this new process of figuring out how to move in the world again, that it's like, at least I kind of have a better sense of um, like where the pieces lay essentially, um, which I think is uh-huh. such an interesting contrast to what I tend to see um among certain communities, especially online that do kind of treat autism or especially like their own child being diagnosed as autistic as like a death sentence, you know? Uh And of course, and it is, of course it's a nuanced discussion because like you were saying, it's like, no one wants to be like, Oh yeah, it's 100% an advantage or it's 100% a disadvantage. Um, But it, it definitely seems like for you that like kind of coming to that realization was ultimately a boon to you and like kind of who you are now. Absolutely. Um, just to give a little bit of context, like I didn't pass a year in high school, right? And I ended up going back to community college at 25. So, you know, until that point, I had just been like, oh, I guess I'm just not good at school. But then I went back and suddenly I was getting all A's. And to the point that I got into an Ivy League school as one of the token poor kids that they let in, you know, uh, the, <laughs> the redheaded stepchildren of the university, if you will. And, you know, I had a really good GPA. I was doing really well, but I felt like I couldn't sit still in class and I would lose focus so easily. Like taking a test, you know, if somebody was sniffling every six seconds, my mind would just latch onto that and I would just lose where I was. Or if I had a 70 page reading assignment, I would read a few pages and then be like, the hell did I just read? Like I would have all these moments. But if you just looked at my transcript, you would say, oh, this person isn't struggling, you know, because I, (laughs) I'm good enough at bullshit that I was able (laughs) to get through a lot of that stuff just simply because I have a way with words and writing that I can get through stuff and make it sound like I know what I'm talking about, even when I don't. But Once I started getting medication uh, specifically to treat ADHD symptoms, because once again, there's a lot of crossover there as well. All of a sudden, I'm just like capable of this hyper focus that just zeroes in on class. I'm not sitting and, you know, moving my legs back and forth and just feeling like I'm, I'm so restless. And I got through my senior year and I'm just sitting there going, I could have been doing this the whole time. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So it it was, it was really neat to sort of see how, how treating all these things that I just thought were personality quirks or just how I was to being like, no, there was actually a reason for all of this. And now, you know, you don't have to worry about it. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. 
And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping code M-U-L-T-I. So similarly to, you know, the work that you've done, the writing that you've done, looking at this intersection of neurodivergence and autism and gender identities, have you observed or found anything interesting regarding that same intersection, but with people in non-traditional relationships? Yeah, um, kind of along similar lines. I feel like autistic people are less likely to care about the extreme need for monogamy or the societal pressure of it, because we as autistic people tend to reject those social pressures. So for me, monogamy was never something that I highly valued. It wasn't like I didn't try to respect people or try to keep my promises, but it just, it didn't hold much weight with me and I didn't understand it. Uh, this need to just uh, zero in on one person and have them be responsible for everything and vice versa. Like I had a lot of trouble with that. And I had a lot more fun when I was out dating with multiple people, but not in a serious relationship. So uh, kind of doing that and then, you know, coming out as trans and coming out, you know, as autistic all at the same time, dating multiple people led me to learn more about myself and, made it easier to uh, articulate what it was that I wanted and needed and that I didn't need to just keep all of this on one person and be like, here, uh, yeah, here I have, uh, I'm, I'm on four podcasts <laughs> this week. I, I have three football practices. I have school and I need to do these four other things. Uh, you need to be all <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> yeah. <So>. Right. <laughs> well. Yeah, have, so that, that was kind of where it was at. Have you also noticed any trends in terms of, you know, not just yourself moving there, but do you feel like you notice that within the non-monogamy community that there are more autistic people than on average because of that? Like, do you feel like it attracts more people in the same way that it seems like it attracts people who like role-playing games or board games? You know, like what? I'm just curious if you've noticed any trends like that. I, I do think there may be a correlation uh, between all three of those things mm. in the sense that uh, queer, trans, autistic people often don't get to experience mm. their childhood. You know, we're, we're masking. Mm. And uh, that's usually a term used by autistic people, but it's true for queer and trans people, too, because we're not being our authentic selves. We're presenting a, a face to survive. We're, you know, to, to minimize the bullying and the hazing and the outright violence that some people like me experience for all three of those reasons. But, you know, when we come out and when we really start living as our authentic selves, there's this kind of urge to make up for what we've missed mm -hmm. and, um, you know, get all of that back that, you know, I, I speak again as a trans woman, uh, this may, this may vary for other gender identities within the trans community, but I, I, I gained a strong attachment to the word girl as opposed to woman, because I always liked that word better when I was a kid and I never got to use it. Mm. Mm, and yeah. attaching myself to it was kind of reclaiming this period in my life where the words I was being forced to use about myself didn't match up. 
and I, I, I call it a retcon where I just mm-hmm. kind of look back on how things would have been if I had the, the access to the information and my parents were knowledgeable and all of those things. And it's, 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 it's a lot like a reclamation. And in terms of relationships, you know, most of us didn't get to date the way we wanted to either. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you don't want to come out and just be with one person right away because you have this whole world that's opened up to you. And a lot of people just have this urge to explore it, which is in my experience, some of the reasons that people who are in marriages or deeply committed relationships, when they come out as trans, they either become non-monogamous or they break up Hmm. just because it's like, there's this whole new world that's opened up to me. I feel like my authentic self I have all this dating that most straight people got to do that I never got to experience. I need to overcompensate for the last X number of years right now. <laughs> and it, it's kind of empowering if you think about it. It seems like you are perfectly suited to kind of tra- be a non-monogamous person just because you don't have necessarily these societal pressures like you say you keep saying like i don't care about this and i don't care about that which is amazing because i know so many people who've had so much ingrained within them about what society tells us we have to do or not do and you're just like whatever let's do this thing i'm just gonna live in my authentic self with you know in my authentic way and how wonderful that is and freeing and empowering it took a hell of a yeah. long time to get there. I don't want to make it sound like I just flipped the switch. Uh, but, you know, uh, working in retail definitely ruined Christmas. <laughs> oh, I hear you. God. Amen to that yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. Good Lord. And singing um, Christmas carols yeah. like in Shanghai for <laughs> the, on Christmas for two years. The last days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like even this year, I, I, I've, the last two years I've done an audio play, uh, for the, for the holiday time. And one was a satire of a retrospective historical documentary on oh, the war wow. on Christmas. What? And, <laughs> and this, and this year I did sort of a Christmas Carol. It's a wonderful life parody with this couple who one of them is obviously a lesbian, but you know, mm-hmm. in a straight relationship and they're just over the whole thing. And, the, you know, the guardian angel comes and tries to convince them of all these things. And they keep predicting what the angel's going to do because it's so cliched and it pisses her off. Like, that. Was, <laughs> that's kind of the way I've approached most of these things. It's like I can see from where I am a lot of people just going through these motions and being miserable and frustrated and spending all this money they don't have. And my approach to Christmas is if you buy me something cool. I'm not asking you to, and I'm not buying you anything because if I want to buy you a gift, it's going to be because I want to give you a gift, not because this day says I should. And I found my approach with that to pretty much holidays and social rituals and all of these things that never made any sense to me has been a lot healthier for my mind. Mm, that is kind of funny. I don't want to, I don't want to get off on a tangent about Christmas. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I could though, because I know Jason, I uh, had a lot of conversations uh, just this last Christmas time. I think kind of around that, around like, why do we all keep doing this to ourselves? <laughs> Spending and, and so like, much money and continuing did, to shovel when, into my debt. And like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like, and like, when was, when was the time when Christmas genuinely was a joyful time for people and when did that switch was it all capitalism was it just the victorians when it was like we have nothing to do in the winter and and this is the one glimmering beacon of light that gets us through you know so we we did get off on a lot of philosophical discussions about that that did boil down to the whole like it is often the holiday time can turn into like it's like this big collective mass self-gaslighting into like yes this is happy and fun and we love to do this (laughs) (laughs) And I just I just emailed you a link to oh, my I love Christmas it. play. Okay, so, okay, we'll have to check that out. Perfect. Time. <laughs> yeah, it's called a have a very, have a very meta Christmas, mm. and it, it was a, it was a lot of fun to do. And I I try to view you know being trans, being autistic, and being non monogamous. I try to view all of those things as a privilege of seeing things from a different point of view. Um, you know, to compare how I saw things before I came out versus after I came out to compare them when I was 
in those relationship worlds versus what I'm in now versus before I knew I was autistic. And now I kind of view it as extra insight and extra empathy for people who may not be there. So I, I, I try to view every, every way that, you know, maybe that I've been marginalized, but everything that's characterized about me, I try to view it as an advantage to be able to help others and to have a perspective that people may not consider. And I feel like that's kind of been the basis of my activism since I started. Right. Well, so to transition from that a little bit, when we first met you, it was at Minnesota Polycon, you gave a keynote speech where you were reading essentially some Tinder profile poetry, um, is what it sounded like to me. Was the book already written at that point? Or or was that just kind of part of the work in progress, what you were reading at Minnesota Polycon? Uh, that was kind of the basis for the idea. Um, I was trying to think of a speech to write for the for the con. And I'm I'm actually part of a Facebook group called Sounds Like Unicorn Hotel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, intimately familiar with that group. <laughs> so like I would just see all of these consistent cliches and tropes. And I, you know, I, I first just put it into like an opening joke kind of kind of thing. And when I noticed how much controversy it start, started up with the board or whatever they were of MN Polycon, it was like, I must be touching a nerve somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I kind of uh, reactivated my, my Tinder and started doing research and finding ones for myself. And because I am at heart a theater kid and <laughs> I, you know, even my academic speeches are designed to be performed Uh, writing, I don't want to call it slam poetry, but having poems like that and travel anecdotes and I write, you know, travel reviews in those kinds of styles, like those always kill at open mics. (laughs) So I figured they would work well in in speeches and they did. Yeah. I, I am curious about that though, because that is something that I do remember from Minnesota Polycon. I don't remember exactly what you said, but you said some, at the end of the speech, you did say something to the effect of like, and if you're like really offended right now, maybe you need to think about your actions and maybe re-examine your Tinder profile, <laughs> essentially. Um, uh-huh. And I, I'm curious to know, you know, I do think that you're on the money when you were saying earlier about how right now representation still really focuses on the stereotypical, you know, straight couple trying to find a hot bi babe. You know, hopefully we're slowly moving past that. But as far as like within the polyamorous community, Like, what do you think is the basis of why commenting on unicorn hunting or even calling out unicorn hunting behaviors, why there's still such a sensitive nerve that runs so deep there that still kind of makes it so so that it's like, oh, we kind of have to think twice about about that. Well, there's a lot of straight privilege that tends to go into it, Mm. you know, um, and that's not to say that all straight poly couples, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm not speaking in those like hashtag not all couples or whatever. But at the same time, there's this idea that's like, oh, we've broken this social norm. We're being dangerous. How dare you say, you know, Mm. how dare you say that we're doing something wrong? We're going against the grain. And yeah, that's great. You know, rebel, rebel. But when you're objectifying another person and someone points it out and your reaction is just, you know, just explode at them, maybe you need to figure out if you're actually in this for the reasons you say you are or, um, you know, so you're on that Facebook group. You see all the time that people are just looking for this this live action version of their porn searches and it's, it's gross and it really makes people feel uncomfortable. And when the people you are seeking are telling you that they're uncomfortable and your reaction is to say, fuck them. Uh, that's probably a sign that maybe you need to do what I said earlier and take a step back and figure out why you're being so defensive. Yeah. I actually had to kind of mute that group from coming up in my newsfeed because it would just make me nauseated. (laughs) Like Uh multiple times a day, seeing the posts that would come up. Um, I guess the thing that's always really fascinating to me is, and I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm sure that it's probably like straight 
privilege coupled with, you know, this being the particular form of non-monogamy that's like the least threatening to straight men specifically. Um, but just that it it's um, so prevalent, you know, I feel like any of us could like pop open our tinders at any place in the States and find, you know, right away, at least five unicorn hunting couples right away that it's so prevalent and yet still so not self-aware, <laughs> I suppose, yeah. as a community of people. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the, the issues you'll see there are represented in a lot of non, non-couples profiles. And, you know, I tried to make that readily apparent in, in my work that like the same stuff that we're seeing that's problematic in your couples profile is also problematic in your individual profile. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not just an issue of the non-monogamy community. It's, it's an issue in the dating community in general of, but now we have all these examples that are readily available that we can point to and go, yeah, you're being kind of shitty here. And here's 10 more just like you that maybe I can point out to show you. And I think the, the, rec- the relatively recent level of access that we have plays a lot of difference in that, too. Because as queer people have formed their communities and as non-monogamous people have formed their communities and, you know, maybe they've only talked about it with two or three people. All of a sudden, there's this group of 200 people or 10,000 people that they, they approach this fresh eyed and all of a sudden they're being told that they're wrong. And that can be intimidating and that can be uh, that can feel threatening. But if, if you're if you're brand new to something and you're not listening to somebody who's already been there or at least considering it and not assuming that you already know everything, why are you really there? What, what's your actual motivation? So um, it, it, I don't think it's specific to unicorn hunting or couples dating. I think it's emblematic of a bigger problem that just happens to get magnified in these cases. So is there ever a good way to unicorn hunt or like a better way? Or is it just total fucking bullshit? Yeah. Opinions vary on that. <laughs> just because you talk <laughs> about it. So yeah, group. I'd be interested to know your opinion. Like, I, I feel like unicorn hunting gets categorized as the problematic aspects of couples dating. Right. So I do feel like there's there's a line between there. There's couples datings and then there's unicorn hunters in the pejorative sense. So when the, the third or fourth or whoever, when they have full agency and there's not couples privilege and there's not fetishizing and there's not this hierarchical, hierarchical bullshit when the person who is coming into the relationship is not just there for the sex and then dehumanized and thrown out onto the street and pretend that they don't exist and, you know, is just treated as a lesser or as an objectified fetish giver. Like that's, that's the line. When we denigrate unicorn hunters, we're talking about the people who are, I want a female and this is the one penis policy. And this is all these other, you know, problematic, homophobic, transphobic things that we run into. Um, so it's, it's really just a difference of equality and agency and autonomy. Uh, and if you don't have respect for any of those things, that's when it's not ethical. Mm. Uh, what you saying that is reminding me that I feel like I, what I am starting to see with couples profiles, which I don't know if this is necessarily a good sign. I actually think it's maybe a slightly more dangerous sign. I'm starting to see more couples profiles where they're kind of trying to rope in the language and like say the right mm. things. Like I see a lot more couples profiles of like, oh, we're looking for someone for an equal partnership and we're going to treat you well and we're not going to treat you like a unicorn. And I think that is hard because it's kind of like you can learn how to say the right things, but then it's like, how can you prove that really, you know, at the end of the day? And so I, that's kind of the new trend that I'm starting to see is like some couples starting to get maybe like a little bit more cognizant and a little bit more self-aware. But I feel like my impression is that it's more of like, okay, we'll rope in the language to still serve the same means as, or the same goal as before, essentially. Is that really a new tactic, though? I feel like that's what the the circle of abusers and the abused have been doing since the beginning of cognizant. Uh, that's relationships. yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah. You know, if you take uh, you know a single straight cis relationship and you and you see someone who is constantly trying to love bomb or show that they've improved, or a guy trying to use the right feminist language to appeal to a certain person, like it, it's not that much different. It's just a little bit more specific here. So it's, 
it's it's a different example in the overall context of you know these circles of problematic behavior, abusive behavior, and unethical behavior. So um, I, I I don't feel like it's a new trend. I think it's a new chapter in the same book. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I think that something that brings up for me though the example that Dedeker is giving is I do feel like there's <clears throat> well okay let me take a step back. Uh, you know, like with the example of abusers, I think that this is also true of a lot of abusers who don't know that they're doing that, or at least are not mm-hmm. that specifically consciously aware that that is specifically what they're doing. Sometimes they are, but I feel like maybe even in a lesser sense, I know that when a lot of people are new to non-monogamy, they tend to do a lot of shitty things, even if they don't think they're going to, because they just don't know how to do it yet. You know, like they just haven't gotten that level of comfort. And I feel like that's what I tend to see a lot with those couples is it's like, yeah, 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 it's going to be totally fine. We're going to treat you equally. It's all going to be fine. And then as soon as anything challenging happens, it's like, oh, well, we we didn't mean to, but we went back to our safety net, which is each other and tossing you out. Right. Because you're more easily disposable. And it's. Yeah, I think that sounds like. Yeah, that sounds like the argument of cancel culture. Like it feels like it's kind of the same thing. Where, you know, the whole, oh, I said one wrong thing and nobody educated me, therefore I'm a victim of cancel culture. Like, Mm -hmm. I I feel like that's sort of in the same conversation. Um, And most of the examples that I've at least seen, there is usually some kind of attempt to say, hey, uh, what you're doing is kind of shitty here. Mm -hmm. And when they, you know, lash out at people who say that, that's when it becomes meme material, at, at least in my experience. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me going back to what you said before about if you feel defensive, that's when you should start listening. And it yes. is that they didn't do that. Yeah. But that's, mm-hmm. but that's when it gets posted in the group, <laughs> right. in the and, unicorn hunting know, group. It's the same thing if someone, uh, you know, says something that could be construed as transphobic on my Facebook profile. I will at least take the time to go, hey, uh, that's kind of shitty. Here's why. And if their reaction is, oh, everybody's too sensitive these days, it's like, okay, you're done. <laughs> you know, it's, right. uh, you know I, I am an educator. I do try to have patience, but uh, I don't have that much energy. And I'm not going to spend it on someone who seems dedicated to not learning anything. Right. That makes sense. Good boundary to have. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know. Gosh, so I feel like we've covered... A lot of different things today. We've talked about neurodivergence. We've talked about, um, you know, gender identity and coming out and how that's related. Trends across the country, um, kind of how things are changing, as well as unicorn hunting and all of this. I feel like we've hit so many things. And in the spirit of hitting so many things, can you tell us uh, about some things that you'd like to promote? You've written nine books. I mean, what's what's yes. up with that? Uh, tell us about all that <laughs> and your podcast. And your new podcast and Dude, time all to those do things. Anything except for all of these awesome things that you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh I in my spare time when I have it, uh I, I really enjoy uh going with my partner Murph or uh spending time with my family. Uh I go to the zoo a lot and I do a lot of photography of the zoo and the, the North Shore of Minnesota, which is particularly beautiful. That's kind of my happy uh, low stem, get out of everything place. Mm. But part of the reason that I've written so many books is because I got treated for, you know, the ADHD slash autism symptoms. And all of a sudden everything was firing on all cylinders. Like, uh, just to give some context, my first book was written during my senior year as I was attending Donald Trump's alma mater. You went to the university of Pennsylvania. No, yes, I did. yeah, and so did and, he. Wow, oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And I came out a month before he was elected. So there I am in the middle of all of that. And I just started writing and I ended up writing an entire reaction to the election in nine days and got the whole thing out before he was inaugurated. So if, if, if you take into the idea that that's how fast I write, uh, I'm actually a little disappointed. I've only written. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, um, but a, a lot of stars kind of lined up for that. Um, a friend of mine who happens to be a, a former NFL player and has a relatively well-known uh, uh, queer activist 
aligned ideology, uh, Chris Cluey. Uh, I had just interviewed him on election day. So, you know, I reached out to him and I'm like, Hey, I'm trans. I'm writing a book about this bullshit that just happened. Do you want to write the forward? And he was like, yeah, send it to me when it's done. And there we are. Like I just, a lot of it has been right place, right time. But since then I've written two YA novels, uh, both with trans characters, obviously, I wrote, um, you know, books of essays, uh, one focusing on my story, story as a neurodivergent person and others. Uh, I, re- I wrote a response piece to the vagina monologues that was focused on queer, trans and people of color. Um, so I've, I've really been all over the board um, with as much writing as I do and putting it out there. So it's... It's not as impressive as people seem to think no, it, it is. is. It's just been something like I've been keeping all this stuff in for decades. And now all of a sudden I can just unleash it. And I also happen to get the right cocktail of pills that make everything work right. So all of a sudden, blah, here's all the stuff I've been trying to say since I was 18 years old and beyond. So, yeah. um, and then I, you know, also just happened to attend an elite university as one of the token poor kids and learned from some of the best in the world on how to do that and how to get better at it. So, you know, I have, you know, the skill of being able to write hyper fast and then I got it fine tuned by amazing people. And then I also fixed what was making it difficult for me. And so all of that at once, plus coming out as trans in 2016, at Donald Trump's alma mater, like it was just all at once. And it's kind of been the same ever since. And since also my coming out video kind of went a little viral, I was put in the position where it's like, well, better come out before everybody else recognizes me. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, okay. So your most recent book is the one we were just talking about, which is Tinder uh-huh. Profile Poetry, which is book number nine. And for our listeners, if you're a patron and you stick around for the bonus episode, we're going to be reading some sections with Marissa uh, from Tinder Profile Poetry. So definitely stick around for that. We'll talk more about it. Um, And then also, you have a podcast of your own, which is called The Cis Are Getting Out of Hand. I love that. Yes. uh, Which has 130-something episodes now, which is cool. About there. Um, And can you tell us just sort of quick pitch for like, what what is that podcast so people can know if they want to go check that out? Well, sure. And I recently ended a podcast called the Inciting Incident Podcast, and that had two hundred nine mm. episodes. That went back to my start uh, four years ago. Uh, the the Sister Getting Out of Hand is a blatantly sarcastic trans satire podcast. The the whole concept is there are no cis people on the show, and we do not take their feelings into consideration when making this mm-hmm. show. And the idea is to get a look into the way we talk about everybody when they're not around. Because so much of trans activism is 101, taking people through basic terms and starting at the beginning. So it was my idea to sort of have a one hour, hap- you know, a happy hour slash shit posting podcast. And that's essentially what it is. You know, we have skits where we act out whatever we're talking about, uh, you know, and we just kind of. I, I, I hate to say it's like talking shit, but it is in a little bit of a way. But if you listen to one episode, you realize where it's coming from and, it, and that the, there's a heart behind it. It's not just talking shit. Um, and people responded to it to the point that we're still going. So uh, obviously we're hitting a nerve somewhere. And, you know, we talked earlier about how representation matters. It's nice, as I've been told, to hear trans people talking about what trans people talking about without having to stop and go, okay, this is what cis means for the 300th time today. Right. So, um, And then I just started a kind of a passion project podcast with uh, my friend Amy uh, called OK Then, a, a retrospective on the show Fargo, because a major plot line of that Christmas play I sent you was the TV show Fargo. And my friend Amy, who is also a, a star in that show, we were kind of like, we're both in Minnesota. We should talk about it. And then it became a show. That's great. And I love that show. I'll also be start. I've recorded several episodes of a new show um, that will be coming out soon with my partner Murph and the original co-host of Inciting Incident called But I Heard About It. And that idea is based on the fact that Murph kind of grew up very isolated in fundamentalist Christianity and missed the 90s pretty much. And <laughs> 
uh, the, like I've had to show them Back to the Future. I've had to show them Lord of the Rings. I've had to show them all of these things that are so commonly seen and talked about that it was like, what if we did a show where we talked about how I've known about this since you, since I was a kid, but you're seeing it for the first time and kind of contrasting those things. And then just the fact that Brian, my friend Brian is in on it and he is the smartest, most photographic memory person I know. And he has really good perspectives on that as well. We just decided to make it a thing. And that'll, after we record probably five episodes, that's where, when we're going to start releasing it. That's fine. It's kind of like the the spiritual opposite of our Drunk Bible Study podcast, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> which is about exposing Emily to all the the biblical '90s stuff that Jason and I grew up with <laughs> that Emily did yeah. not. Nope. Oh, funny. <laughs> yeah. So, so and Murph would probably there you go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> definitely. Most definitely. Yay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Marissa, for being on the show. This was an amazing uh, talk that we had and a lot of things to think about, a lot of fun. And we are going to continue the conversation with a special reading from your book on our patron-only episode. Uh, And also, we would love to hear what you thought of this episode. We'd love to hear more um, just on the topics that we spoke about today. And if you have heard of Marissa before or read any of her books. And so the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion thread in our private Facebook group or Discord chat. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email us at info at multiamory.com. Leave us a voicemail at 678-MULTI-05. Or you can leave us a voice message on Facebook. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanera. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowark and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh Nonand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. 